from the WGN Skyline Studio. WGN Radio presents a conversation. I want to make one thing perfectly clear. A dialogue. What are you prepared to do? An astute debate. Everything that's in the law. And a peek behind the curtain of politics. And then what are you prepared to do? I think Chicago is not only the center of the country, I think it's the center of the world. Don't tread on them. Where did this statement come from? This is the Sunday Spin. Your host is the Chicago Tribune's Rick Pearson. Good Sunday afternoon, everyone. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune, and welcome to this edition of the Sunday Spin for May the 24th, 2020. Hope you're all having a good Memorial Day holiday weekend. Welcome to our look at the world of politics and policy. We go from City Hall to the State House and on to the White House. So be safe, be home. Take a break, enjoy this gorgeous day, grab a beverage, and we'll get you prepared with what you know for the week ahead. I got to tell you, after all the rain that we've been having, uh, I thought that uh, summer would never arrive. But wow, what what a, what gorgeous weather out there, Roger. Yeah, we've officially hit 80 now at O'Hare. So uh, I don't have my list of high temps uh, in history in Chicago, uh, but it's probably right up there for uh, this time of the year. Well, we're overdue. Yeah, and, way uh, overdue. As you said, coming into the newsroom today, it was yeah. nice, nice coming in with out of jacket exactly exactly because you know the, a couple of days in the pa- past couple of days with the rain and stuff you're in between the heavy winter jacket and the somewhat light spring jacket but even that spring jacket might be a little too warm and you don't know if the temperature is going to go up or drop so that was uh, from a coat standpoint a fashion standpoint well, who i count on you yeah. for, for for the fashion tips well you're counting on the wrong guy well, well, after, telling you. after the one you gave me last sunday after i wore my winter jacket oh, in right. the man in yeah. the monsoon uh, and you suggested that might be just a little bit overdoing it. A little bit, yeah, because it was it was still kind of warm, but the wind, that Chicago wind, kind of grabs at you, but not today. See, and that's part of the problem with, uh, I mean, God bless, this is beautiful mm-hmm. studios, yeah. and, and and but it's the wind, and that's mm-hmm. the that's coming to work here mm-hmm. is you never know what that wind is going to be yeah. like, the way it, it moves through the tunnels, mm-hmm. and uh, that. I don't know if it's going to be 10 degrees cooler. Exactly. Well, right now it's 80 at O'Hare, 73 along the lakefront. We're at oh. the lakefront, so yeah, yeah you know, it's it's comfortable. I'm not complaining. Trust me, oh, winter's no. over. Summer's here as far as I'm concerned. No, and yeah, uh, yeah I mean, this is the, the traditional kind of kickoff of summer. Yeah. We heard Pete on his way out the door talking about how he's going to go grill a steak. I and, know. Uh, i got to find out where he lives. I, need to... <laughs> I, I, I know where he lives. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Trust me. I'll find you. Hope he's got extra. Well, I mean, and tomorrow... <laughs> finally oh, yeah. i'll have a day off there you go yeah uh, and uh I'm, I'm doing the ribs i mean oh you're doing ribs are yes. they already soaking uh they are it, it's it's in a dry rub they're okay. marinating in a All dry right. rub good 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 so my dry rub from 17th street barbecue down mm-hmm. in murfreesboro illinois nice it's uh their magic dust they mm-hmm. call it it's well worth it, believe me. And, Excellent. Uh, and, of course, they will ship anywhere in the United yes, States. Yes, they will. Yeah. Yes, they will. So that And, and I mean, their food is excellent. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they've been on, uh, Amy and Mike, her father, they've been on 
Food Network and all of that. Oh, they're, nice. They're, they're big award winners when it comes to barbecue. Excellent. So, uh, it's nice to have gotten to know them and know I can always get that <laughs> supply of the magic dust. Yeah. Although when you say I'm getting a shipment of magic dust, you can't always uh, yeah, be right. sure that the federales aren't uh, kind of wonderful. Police, when walking on. down the street, stops, yes. turns around, and gives yeah. you that look. Well, I guarantee you, you don't really want to sniff too much of that stuff because oh, it's got a yeah, yeah, it'll set your nostrils on Oof. fire. <laughs> but I've got a neighbor who uh, just got a new grill, and I'm going to help Ooh. set that up for them tomorrow, and that's nice. going to be the kind of tryout tomorrow. Now are we doing gas grill or traditional charcoal it's a gas grill okay. because of the fire code kind of thing oh gotcha uh, all right but but i've got a uh a smoker box that i put the soaked wood chips in mm. and and there is one thing about charcoal and the smoker and wood chips versus the uh, gas grill is you can set that gas grill up high enough to get the wood chips going ah easier. okay and with charcoal, you kind of got to let it go, and then you throw the wood chips on. Trust get, me. You got to get it hot enough. Yeah, yeah right. I, prefer, I, I do prefer charcoal, mm-hmm. but I've gotten to learn to adjust to gas. And, I got gotcha. you. Uh, um, yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm happy that I have passed on the the charcoal grilling skills that I learned from my father. I have passed on to our son, yes. who, uh, when I came in last night uh, to see what they were having for dinner, very, very nice lemon chicken uh, that they cooked, um, He ha- I'd noticed that the grill had been moved in the back, and then I saw the, the uh, bag of charcoal underneath the kitchen table, and I go, oh, were you grilling? He says, yeah, I made a nice steak last night, and we're doing this tomorrow night, and I go, good, gave him the thumbs up. He's he knows how to do the batter grilling. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah. And uh, I I did some uh, I did some salmon uh, earlier in the week, even nice. in the rain. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, with the I mean, I didn't have the the cedar planks. That's oh, really the way to do it. Is yeah, the get that flavor into it. But it really it it still came out fantastic. Nice. Uh, I love salmon on the grill. It, salmon and tuna. On it the just grill. it reminds me how you don't. We don't have it enough. Right. You know, every time you have it, and then it's like, geez, I haven't had mm-hmm. fish in a long time. Yeah. And so, it, but it, God, it just turned out perfect. Well, you've got uh, five months to get all your grilling in here. Oh, five, no, no. I grill, I grill year round. Oh, you do? Oh, yeah. Oh, very nice. I, I mean, I do the turkey on the grill for Look Thanksgiving. You. Oh, well, yeah. now I know where to go for Thanksgiving. <laughs> Let's see. I've got Pete tonight for steak. Yes, I got right. you Thanksgiving for the turkey. I got to get more people in my life so I can keep going around. <laughs> well, I intend to read about those people in your life now. That thank you very much for the copy of your book. You're very welcome, sir. And. Uh, Obviously, you can find Roger on Facebook, but if you follow the show or you follow me, I put a, 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 a share to how you can get a copy of the book. And Thank you very much. I very, appreciate I'm that. I'm very anxious to uh, to dive into this. Sounds good. You'll recognize some of the stuff from Carbondale. <laughs> I'm um, sure I will. <laughs> and, and wonder what parts I had to edit out. <laughs> See, that's that's why I'm looking forward to this book. That's why I kept asking you is because I want to read between the lines yes. on this. <laughs> you definitely will. 
Oh, I can't wait now. That's I really great. can't That's wait. That's great. Well, Roger's <laughs> here to keep us up to date on all the news and weather. Producer Casera is here to field your phone calls at 312-981-7200. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Sunday Spin. We're on Twitter at symbol Sunday Spin. You can find all of our shows on WGNRadio.com. You can also get our podcasts on iTunes by searching for my name, Rick Pearson. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Sunday Spin on WGN. Three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred is your phone number. I'm Rick Pearson. This is your Sunday spin on this gorgeous Memorial Day holiday weekend Sunday. Up ahead on this Sunday spin, uh, we'll be speaking to Republican leader of the Illinois Senate, State Senator Bill Brady of Bloomington, after the five thirty update from Roger. Uh, after six o'clock, we'll speak to Democratic State Senator Sarah Feigenholtz of Chicago. Uh, right around 6.30, we'll be speaking to Michael Jacobson. He's the president and CEO of the Illinois Hotel and Lodging Association. And we'll talk about, as we've talked with Sam Toy about restaurants, we'll talk to uh, Michael about uh, the hospitality industry as it relates to hotels. And uh, obviously, they've been uh, enlisted for helping with uh, the pa- pandemic, with the uh, first responders, those kinds of things. But we'll talk about, you know, where is the industry and what's it going to look like in the future. Uh, we'll be speaking later in the show to Michael Kevinargi. He's a commissioner on the Cook County Board of Review, and we'll talk to him about the county and issues involving property taxes and uh, what what the county is doing in regards to those. And then at 7.30, we'll speak to Mike Militich. He's state house correspondent for Quincy Media's t- TV stations. They're in Quincy, Peoria, Rockford, and Harrisburg. And we'll talk to him about the recently concluded legislative session. And uh, I got to tell you, you know, we're all kind of look at how we feel like it's Groundhog Day every day because of the obviously the stay-at-home orders, and sometimes we can't tell what day of the week it is. Well, after dealing with the legislative session down in Springfield since, well, they came in on Wednesday, but even dealing with it Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, yesterday, and they finally wrapped up uh, right around 2 a.m. this morning. So you want to talk about a Groundhog Day. I feel like I've, a Groundhog Day within a Groundhog Day of really not being able to tell what's going on. But obviously we have a new state budget, so we'll be talking to uh, those members of the legislature about that. Other things that got accomplished in Springfield. Um, it was uh, quite a session and quite a, quite a difference uh, with the – General Assembly operating under guidelines from the State Department of Public Health uh, over uh, how to how to work in a pandemic, including uh, seeing legislators uh, wearing face masks. Very, very, very interesting. Well, now it's time to spin uh, through our week of national politics. And earlier this morning, Dr. Deborah Burks, who's she's the leading the government's efforts against the coronavirus with the coronavirus task force. She was on Fox News Sunday. Host Chris Wallace asked her, with the death toll in this country ready to eclipse 100,000, what happened to her earlier predictions that we'd be kind of at the bottom of the models and 60,000 deaths. 
a month ago, you were saying we were going to come down below the low end of the model, which is 100 to 240,000 to 60,000. So I guess my question is, in this last month, did you underestimate the strength of the virus? Did uh, we reopen too soon? Did we reopen without sufficient restrictions? What I was saying in that briefing that you were talking about is what that current model was showing. There are different models we have been using all along and in really trying to learn primarily not just from models, but understanding what has happened in Spain and Italy and the UK and really tracking those numbers. We understand that our mortality rates are less than those three countries, and that's really due to the incredible work of our frontline hospital workers. But we understand that these number of infections has led to this level of mortality. And our job now going forward is to do everything we can to prevent additional hospitalizations and additional mortality. Now, as you can tell, she really kind of didn't really give us the answer on that. Uh, and obviously, model shift as there's more data, that kind of thing. But still, uh, here we are approaching uh, and eclipsing 100,000 deaths in this country. Now, the issue of worship has been a major point of contention in the stay-at-home orders nationally here in Chicago. Some churches unsuccessfully sought to contravene Governor Pritzker's stay-at-home orders in court. That didn't happen. Mayor Lightfoot has warned against churches holding services that violate the gatherings of less than 10 people rule. Governor has now issued guidelines for religious services in the next phase orders. But President Trump, appealing to his evangelical base, declared churches as an essential service and added a caveat. Today I'm identifying houses of worship, churches, synagogue, and mosques as essential places that provide essential services. Some governors have deemed liquor stores and abortion clinics as essential, but have left out churches and other houses of worship. It's not right. So I'm correcting this injustice and calling Houses of Worship Essential. I call upon governors to allow our churches and places of worship to open right now. If there's any question, they're going to have to call me, but they're not going to be successful in that call. These are places that hold our society together and keep our people united. The people are demanding to go to church and synagogue, go to their mosque, Many millions of Americans embrace worship as an essential part of life. The ministers, pastors, rabbis, imams, and other faith leaders will make sure that their congregations are safe as they gather and pray. I know them well. They love their congregations. They love their people. They don't want anything bad to happen to them or to anybody else. The governors need to do the right thing and allow these very important essential places of faith to open right now for this weekend. If they don't do it, I will override the governors. I will override the governors, which prompted a lot of questions about how the authority of the president extends to those rights that are reserved for the states. Uh, Trump made this announcement in the White House press room, but he didn't stick around to take questions. Questions like how Dr. Burks said congregants in these places where there are uh, 
really widespread uh, coronavirus infections, she said people should wait a week or so before attending church. Trump's press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, issued a puzzling, convoluted, and chastising answer to reporters who asked how Trump could usurp a governor or whether he was putting people in danger. Does the White House now support these churches that are defying governor's orders and opening up? The president's been very clear. He wants churches to reopen. He wants them to do it safely. He wants them to do it in accordance with our guidance. It's laid out very detailed. Um, It's posted now so you can all take a look through it. And he wants to see all of those churches open in a safe fashion. If the governor does not allow that, does the White House support churches defying these executive orders? The president's been very clear. He wants to see churches reopen in accordance with his guidelines. The answer is yes. I just... I gave you an answer. The president would like churches to reopen and do it in accordance with the guidelines. What specific provision of federal law allows the president to override a governor? The president will strongly encourage every governor to allow their churches to reopen. And boy, it's interesting to be in a room that desperately wants to seem to see these churches and houses of worship stay closed. The president said that he has that. I object to that. I mean, I go to church. I'm dying to go back to church. The question that we're asking you and would like to have asked the president and Dr. Burks is, is it safe? And if it's not safe, is the president trying to encourage that, or does the president agree with Dr. Burks that people should wait? Jeff, it is safe to reopen your churches if you do so in accordance with the guidelines, which are laid out um, very stringent detail here about promoting hygiene practices, and there are five bullet points, and cloth face coverings. Um, if social distancing is not possible, it's recommended. Um, intensifying cleanings, promoting social distance, we lay them out meticulously. Um, so I am thankful that we have a president that celebrates the First Amendment. The same amendment that gives you all the ability to ask me questions is there to have the freedom of worship so imams and pastors um, can go to their churches, can go to their places of worship, and can celebrate what is a First Amendment right in this country. Interesting that uh, the White House is defending a First Amendment right in this country, uh, which, of course, we know that the First Amendment also includes the freedom of the press. That, of course, would be the same press that the president refers to as the enemy of the people. Now, the president has made no secret about his distaste for inspector generals that have been working in cabinet-level agencies. Friday night was a good good night to watch for these announcements that he's fired an inspector general. It doesn't get a lot of attention on a Friday. We've had at least four that have been fired, the latest Stephen Linick at the State Department. He was reportedly looking into lavish spending by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Pompeo said he recommended Trump fire Linick, but he said it wasn't retaliation. There are claims that this was for retaliation, for some investigation that the inspector general's office here was engaged in. It's patently false. I have no sense of what investigations were taking place inside the inspector general's office. Couldn't possibly have retaliated for all the things. I've seen the various stories that like, someone was walking my dog to sell arms to my dry cleaner. I mean, I mean it's all just crazy. It's all, it's all, it's all crazy stuff. So, so I didn't have I didn't have access to that information, so I couldn't possibly have retaliated. It would have been impossible. There's one exception. Uh, I was asked a series of questions in writing. I responded to those questions with respect to a particular investigation that was sometime earlier this year, as best I can recall. Responded to those questions. I don't know the scope. I don't know the nature of that investigation, other than what I would have seen from the nature of the questions that I was presented. Um, I did what was right. I don't know if that investigation is continuing. I don't know if that investigation has been closed out. 
don't have any sense of that. Again, it's not possible that further have been retaliation. That's Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. You're listening to The Sunday Spin on WGN. Now, The Sunday Spin continues on 720 WGN. Here's Rick Pearson. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson, the Chicago Tribune, here in the WGN Skyline Studios overlooking a gorgeous, gorgeous Sunday afternoon on the Chicago River and out at Navy Pier. Joining me now on the phone is Illinois State Senate Republican Leader Bill Brady of Bloomington. Leader Brady, thank you for joining me. Rick, good to be with you, and happy Memorial Day weekend. And to you, and I wanted to take a point here, I thought it would be appropriate with you on the phone, that uh, I I was notified that on Tuesday, uh, one of your predecessors, uh, James Pate Phillip of Wooddale, will be turning 90. And I thought it was appropriate... Thought it would be appropriate to wish uh, Pete a very happy birthday. Uh, was Senate President from '93 to 2003. He spent 28 years in the Senate. Was in the House before that. A Marine Corps veteran, uh, controversial, uh, blunt speaker, uh, but uh, that uh, that that made Illinois interesting during those times. It did. Pete, uh, true patriot, never afraid to say what was on his mind. Definitely for for better or for about, worse. <laughs> de- definitely had opinions about what would make Illinois the best state it could be and uh, and led with those. And pretty good status, strategist. I mean, he uh, putting uh, a map together that uh, allowed them to continue to keep control of the Senate chamber for 10 years was uh, quite an accomplishment. So I uh, want to wish uh, Pete a, a happy birthday and uh, he, and let him know that there's still a lot of uh, followers in the Illinois political process. Um, I, I, I don't know if you were listening earlier. I said about how, you know, we're all kind of feeling this uh, Groundhog Day kind of uh, situation when we're staying at home. May not have been the case because of uh, your travels to Springfield, but I said when you take that regular Groundhog Day feeling and then you couple it by dealing with covering the Illinois General Assembly, it's a Groundhog Day in a Groundhog Day. Um, And, uh, you know, obviously the three-day pandemic special session stretched on and ended somewhere around 2 a.m. this morning. Uh, But uh, I, I for one, uh, for better or for worse, I, for one, was surprised at the amount of things that did get done. Yeah, I I wasn't. I mean, a lot of groundwork had been laid uh, on a lot of issues through the working groups, at least in the Senate, that uh, President Harmon and and I uh, asked our members to engage in. So uh, there was a lot of discussion uh, that took place. Members were working hard from their districts. Uh, Some of the issues we could come to an agreement on and and some we could not. But um, we... um, it didn't surprise me we got some things done, but we, we, we were disappointed, as you know, that there was one big issue that didn't get the attention we think it deserves, and that is uh, a legislative discussion and check on the unilateral authority that the governor's been given uh, working through this pandemic. 
and uh, we we all represent people throughout the state, and we were very disappointed, and we'll continue to push uh, for more input from the legislature on how we can move this state's economy forward fast and safely, uh, because there are real people hurting. Uh, businesses are questioning whether they're going to be able to open up, and, uh, and, and employees are wondering if their business is going to be able to open up and stay open. Uh, the real cure to Illinois' problems is to get this economy kicked into gear. Uh, it's, it's been our problem uh, for the last uh, several years. And we've even been facing bigger challenges today. Well, and I know uh, you and uh, House Republican leader Jim Durkin uh, both wanted to see uh, basically an up or down vote on the governor's uh, restore Illinois phased in reopening plan. Wanted to see a wanted to see a floor vote uh, in the General Assembly. Uh, that obviously didn't happen. Um, but I was I, I was curious whether. Uh, because, and you know, a story that I wrote over the weekend that basically got supplanted by the actions of last night. But but the fact is, obviously, there's frustration over you know the the stay at home orders, and it's not partisan frustration. Every you know, everybody's kind of there's angst here, and yeah, we don't know what we don't know. Granted, but. I'm, I'm, I was curious whether, you know, even some Democrats, and we've kind of seen this in some parts of the state, kind of in the metro east area uh, around Madison County, where there are Democratic lawmakers that are basically saying, yeah, open up, open up. We need to open up. And that's basically uh, runs counter to Governor Pritzker's uh, kind of phased-in approach. I was kind of surprised to see if there wasn't some traction there for at least some kind of uh, maybe not legislative oversight, but legislative participation uh, in the reopening process. We were too. We we know that some of our colleagues on the other side of the aisle have real pressures back in their district, uh, like we do, uh, on uh, the restrictions that the governor has in place right now. Uh, we know that people expect us to debate the issues. The, the good news is we proved over the week that we can do that safely, uh, that we can do our work. It's our disappointment that uh, we didn't get more support from the other side of the aisle to stay in Springfield and take up that issue. The people of Illinois deserve a debate. And I give the governor credit for the hard work and the, the sincere effort he has put into this. Uh, but no governor should have unilateral power for that long if the legislature can, can meet. And I, I give him credit for holding press conferences, but those are very limited in terms of what they're, they're able to um, bring about in terms of a discussion. But it's not the press's job to question the executive branch. It's the legislative branch. We're elected. And we were, we were tremendously disappointed we didn't get more uh, for that. We'll continue to work. We, we, we know we only have 19 votes in the, as Republicans in the Illinois Senate. They have 40. Uh, we, we have a good dialogue, but we're going to continue to push well, for the safest, fastest opening possible with legislative involvement. 
I mean, I, I know that there was legislation that, that passed that would create through the Department of uh, Commerce and uh, Economic Opportunity, the old uh, DECA as it was known, this kind of uh, collaborative effort involving 14 legislators, eight Democrats, six Republicans, uh, to kind of advise on reopening strategies. Uh, but I, I I don't sense that that's anything more than just kind of a, a yet another task force where a report that's due in July is going to end up in a file cabinet. Well, I, I hope not, but the timing of it may make it not as relevant as it could have been if we were in Springfield this coming week and, and taking up as a general assembly these issues. Um, you know, we have, and this is this is the pressure we're feeling from the businesses in our districts who don't know if their third generation family business and the employees that they care so much about are going to be able to survive. And, uh, you know, it's not that we don't believe that there should continue to be caution, uh, shelter in your home as often as possible, but all businesses, large and small, should be able to operate safely and competitively, and we shouldn't be putting restrictions on them. We're speaking to Illinois Senate Republican leader Bill Brady of Bloomington. I'm Rick Pearson. This is your Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson, and joining me on the phone is Bill Brady of Bloomington. He is the Illinois Senate Republican leader. We're talking about the recently adjourned uh, special pandemic session of the General Assembly, basically uh, adjourned, I guess it's fair to say, not that many hours ago. Uh, but, Leader Brady, so we get, we get a $40 billion uh, state spending plan, and when you look at it, obviously what sticks out is $5 billion that the state's going to borrow uh, from the Federal Reserve under a program that the Reserve created to assist uh, basically states and, and local governments. We're going to be borrowing that to fill a hole over the massive loss of revenue. And I know this in debate both in the House and the Senate, this was a, a major point that was raised by Republicans. And I guess my question to you is, given the magnitude of the hole that exists in the budget over the decline, the massive decline in tax revenues, what's the alternative but take advantage of that low-interest borrowing? Well, I think um, you certainly want to take advantage of low interest borrowing to what you can fill. And we understand uh, the dramatic decrease in revenues. But there's also uh, an increase in operating, uh, total operating budget uh, in what was passed yesterday, uh, well over the original 2020. So uh, there there were some areas that gave us concern. Uh, we, we had asked, I think, more for Comptroller Hines' cuts that he asked the agencies to uh, provide so we could see that. We really didn't get that flushed out to get a true picture of that. Um, and there were other things in this, but certainly the magnitude. And, and, and we, don't, we also are very compassionate that during a pandemic like this, where you have astronomically record high unemployment, uh, people need their government more than ever. 
but we were also concerned about some of the, the, the lack of emphasis on trying to help businesses, in our opinion, uh, rebuild in this uh, economy. And uh, it just didn't seem to be the focus that we wanted on that in this case. And, and then the other thing was there's tremendous amount of non-general budget uh, expenditures related to COVID. And uh, we had we had concern that there just wasn't enough legislative oversight in these expenditures and, and how they're going to meet the highest priorities of our of our state. When you talk about oversight, what exactly are you looking at? Well, again, and one of the things that we thought yesterday, and I I know that the the, the simple majority vote to approve a, a budget would have been the end of May. We're not there yet. Uh, but I think if we, we could have think maybe taken this budget into June, where we might know more about the real revenue picture and uh, more about what the federal government's going to give us and had a, had a better opportunity. So that, that was one of our concerns. We don't know what the federal uh, CARES Act will eventually provide, but this budget provides billions of dollars in spending uh, with a lot of discretion given to the governor on that and not as much legislative oversight as we would detail a budget, uh, understanding that there's some, uh, you know, abnormal circumstances here. And But we still think we, we should be weighing in more on these decisions uh, as we know we can safely through our experiences last week. Um, this morning when the governor had uh, his news conference in Springfield to talk about the uh, the legislature's actions as well as to uh, update the state on uh, guidelines for specific businesses that would be reopening uh, in under the new phase that we're entering here at, on May 29th. Uh, but I, I asked the question about uh, state assistance to local governments, and I was curious about your thoughts on that because uh, obviously there are there's funding for municipalities to get back uh, COVID related expenses, uh, PPE, and uh, for overtime and personnel like that. But you're still looking at the fact of many municipalities saying, uh, if without some money and they can't do it with property taxes, uh, they're going to be laying off frontline first responders. Uh, I think Ryan Spain, representative of Peoria, mentioned that this budget, without that, without that kind of help forthcoming, they're looking at closing three fire stations in Peoria. We're very concerned about that. Uh, this gets back to the oversight of the CARES Act resources. You know, to many people... Their local government is the most important government to them, and uh, the, the, in, in many ways it is because they provide the first responders, as you indicated, firefighters, police, uh, picking up the garbage and other things that are so important to their well-being. And so it gives us some concern. But I, w- I will say this, in our negotiations, in my negotiations with the Senate President Harmon, uh, we came to an agreement uh, that we needed to do what we could, at least with the local distributive fund, uh, take the governor's uh, 5% hold back and make them whole with 100% funding of the local distributive fund. And I, I applaud President Harmon and uh, his caucus for joining us in that effort 
and uh, th- that we know how important those local governments are to the people. And uh, we were pleased to see that. But we're very concerned that, as you indicated in your question today in the press conference, that there isn't enough support in here for local governments. Uh, and we're going to have to continue to work to provide more support to them. As I said yesterday, Rick, and you know, you, you, you spend the whole first half of the year approximately – uh, working on legislation and, and building a budget, and it comes down to this, uh, you know, final moment where you you pass a budget, you adjourn, and now you you go back to your lives for the most part, and your homes and your family and your businesses or, or whatever, and uh, you you refocus a little bit on that. Uh, unfo- unfortunately, because of this pandemic and the, this COVID nineteen crisis, uh, our work has just begun. We may have a budget. But there's much more that needs to be done uh, by the legislature and, and making sure uh, that we play a role in advancing the policy, the principles, and the priorities uh, that we need to see our state engaged in to help the people who are, who are so devastated uh, by this, this pandemic. Uh, nothing they did wrong. And uh, we're going to have to keep rolling up our sleeves each and every day uh, from this day forward until we get a, a vaccine and rebuild our economy and the livelihoods of, of the people that we represent throughout the state. I know one thing that didn't get done, and it was kind of a, a, a precursor for this uh, special session, was the issue of the governor's emergency rule that would have made it punishable by as a misdemeanor for business owners who violated the stay-at-home non-essential business closure orders and the faced faced with a, a likely rejection of that emergency rule in a legislative panel uh, he withdrew that but said that you know lawmakers would would come up with an alternative that he didn't want anybody to be a business owner to be arrested but that it wanted kind of a fine situation that would be less than a shutdown order or a uh, or a license suspension and uh, that was kind of the last we heard of it from the legislature. They didn't do anything. What happened? Well, I think that people won. Uh, I think the governor got bad advice when he put that emergency rule into place. Uh, there are repercussions for not following it, but it was an overreach uh, in that rule. And uh, I was pleased to see the bipartisan agreement. Uh, I, I certainly think that that would have, that he would have, been denied that if he had not withdrawn it. And uh, I was pleased to see that the legislature didn't re-engage him in that. We have uh, existing rules and policies in place. We don't need to be more punitive because someone makes a mistake or does something wrong. Um, you know, the governor has sh- shut down people who violated his uh, his orders. He's got plenty of tools, I think. Uh, and, and this was a clearly an overreach. I think he was given bad advice. And I was pleased to see that uh, uh, the Democrats stood with us uh, in opposing any further overreach in this area. So you, it was by your view is bipartisan that we didn't that the legislature didn't move forward with an alternative. Uh, well, yeah, as you know, the rules of JCAR is it would take both parties to deny his right. emergency rule, and, and that clearly would have been done, uh, or he would not have withdrawn it. And then 
the Democrats evidently couldn't come up with what they thought was reasonable in line with uh, what he wanted. So I think uh, they made the right decision there. Uh, this is no time to, to be even more punitive of people who are struggling, uh, you know, in, in their capacity uh, at these times. So I think uh, the, the lack of initiative or completion of anything in that area it sends a, a real message to whoever is advising the governor on this. This is just the wrong direction. What do you view as successes that came out of this session? Well, I, I think, I do think there was, in the Senate particularly, there was some relationship building as we all had to deal with uh, doing our jobs in a different way that, we'll, that we can build on the future. Uh, there were things that, the Democrats just couldn't complete uh, and uh, that couldn't come to an agreement in their majority with what we we wanted, but it was a healthy discussion. I, I would say, though, that um, there are things that are coming out of this that uh, that that will move us forward that we that we came to an agreement on that we needed to do a hospital assessment that will provide better health care and better funding for the, the people. Uh, in the Senate, we came to an agreement on capital where we can make sure that we're reinvesting every nickel we have in the state to build projects that will help put, put people back to work uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, little things that uh, came to terms on workers' compensation, not little to everybody, um, and uh, uh, other other things like uh, extending the, the TIF legislation, um, important things that uh, needed to be done. And, and even though we didn't agree with the Democrats on a budget, uh, I do believe it's important that we have a budget in place. Uh, and even though we think that budget gave the governor too much authority, uh, we'll, we'll monitor and keep him in check. And as we can, as best we can, uh, using the media and other ways. But uh, putting a budget in place uh, was a good good thing. Well, I thought too the workers' comp uh, agreement between business and labor, and that you know very quickly that was an emergency rule too, and uh, that was uh, pulled uh, under a court suit. And for business yeah. and labor to come to an agreement on uh, presumptions of COVID-related illness on the workplace with yeah. a rebuttable presumption that it, if they can prove it didn't, it didn't. That's I think that's a big deal. Yeah. It is, and uh, we were pleased to see that negotiation. We think there was more that could have been done to help business that was not dealt with. We, but we were absolutely in support of those workers who, um, <clears throat> you know, are proven to have their their inability to work related to the COVID nineteen pandemic uh, had to be. We, we we wanted to make sure we showed the compassion and the passion but there were other things we felt could have been done for business now we, we agreed with the resolution leader i got i'm sorry i'm gonna to have to hold you right there we're running out of time uh illinois senate republican leader bill brady of bloomington thank you this is the sunday spin on 720 wgn once again here's rick pearson of the chicago tribune Welcome back to the second hour of your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. And joining me on the phone is Democratic State Senator Sarah Feigenholtz from Chicago. Senator, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Rick, it's always a pleasure to be on your show. 
Well, I wanted to know, you know, you're a new senator now. Um, this had to be kind of a very strange environment. And for people that weren't closely following what was going on, uh, this was probably as strange a convening of the legislature as the state has ever seen. Well, yeah, it, uh, you know, it certainly wasn't in the plan book, you know, uh, but clearly the legislature and the executive branch have a responsibility. And uh, after this uh, pandemic hit us, this, our world in Illinois and our constituents, we were scrambling and spending a great deal of time actually just doing so much triage businesses closing, uh, unemployment issues. I mean, I I can't begin to tell you. Um, and managing all of it uh, while following the stay-at-home order ourselves and our staff um, doing the same. So we had to acclimate very quickly and start problem-solving um, so that we could come up with remedy and take care of our constituents. But at some point, as you know, we had to get down to Springfield we could not. We had to help the governor. <laughs> we had to do a budget and resolve some problems that only he can do with the legislature. But um, I think at that point, people were just prepared to. Uh, many of us tested before we went. We took precautions. Um, we social distanced. We drove alone. We stayed in our own hotel rooms. There was no socializing. We got down to business, and uh, it was strange. But I think um, on the way home, I felt like we really accomplished about three months' worth of work in three days. What do you think? Well, and that's that's kind of what struck me, because I thought going into this, one, uh, it wouldn't be done in three days, but I, I didn't think it would be done in five days. Um, so uh, that was uh, really taking, as you said, three months of work and, and cutting it down to what really were viewed as essentials, um, as, as well as trying to put together a state budget in this great uncertainty of, of what lies ahead. And, and, uh, you know, obviously, uh, we're all familiar with what it's like to be in a state that didn't have a budget for a couple of years so uh for for the complaints that exist at least at least we have something to work from Uh, but that having been said you know there's still a great deal of uncertainty the fact of uh borrowing up to five billion dollars from the federal reserve uh granted at, 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 at at low interest but nevertheless that kind of borrowing for a state not great credit rating as it is uh and then kind of what's washington going to do because whatever they do and eventually everybody thinks they will do something but eventually that money for states would be used to repay the loan i mean it's it's still kind of a question mark out there well you know i i think you know when you think about uh the cares act it was put uh, the the opportunity to borrow was an agreement between Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump. They all thought it was a good idea. Uh, it passed overwhelmingly in Congress. And, you know, the federal government put this in place and 
and basically encourage not just Illinois, but our 49 other partners in the country to do the same because of exactly this reason for um, this pandemic. And, um, you know, we're not, we are not unique um, being hit by this. Uh, many states have closed their businesses. They have taken education remotely. Um, you know, so this is an opportunity for us to sort of take a breath and um, keep our schools going, invest in e-learning so that if we are still in space in September, that we don't lose precious moments of educating our children, that we shore up our health care system and make sure that we're responding to uh, local governments who have been sideswiped um, and really need our help. And you might have heard my question to the governor this morning or or even to uh, Republican leader Brady about uh, local governments. And to me, I think that, that yeah, they're, they're getting back uh, uh, about $125 million extra from the uh, state share of the income tax. Uh, there's uh, about, I believe, $250 million from the CARES Act. Uh, that is available for reimbur- direct reimbursement of uh, coronavirus-related spending. Um, but after that, uh, you've got you, you have a state government that's you know spending like crazy to deal with this uh, unfortunate mm-hmm. epidemic. But you have local governments that are spending that way. And you know, as far as what I hear from not, not just Chicago, but when you talk to people in Peoria, Rockford, whatever. Uh, Brad Cole from the Municipal League, you've got municipalities looking at laying off these uh, frontline uh, first responders. Well, you know, that we don't want that to happen. You know, interestingly enough, it was a very collegial. I mean, I, I think that uh, I saw more unanimity than I have and less partisanship than I have um, in, in many, many, many years. And I think that uh, Leader Brady sort of... Um, alluded to uh, the, the collaboration and cooperation and how I, I observed uh, people really trying to problem solve, acknowledging the tragedy of the pandemic, trying to mitigate what will continue to be a problem, and at the same time, make smart decisions to, you know, to resolve problems with the tools we have, and of course, wait and see. You know, again, a lot of the uh, wait and see what what how how things um, uh, evolve in in Washington with more resources. I you know you saw saw the Heroes Act. We're hoping that there'll be a little bit more flexibility around the the business loans and the PPP loans uh, around unemployment. You're starting to see some of that happening. Senator, we're gonna, we're gonna. I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to interrupt you right there. We need to sure. get away for a quick break, but we'll pick up this discussion. That's Senator Sarah Feigenholz, Democratic Senator from Chicago. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. It's magic. Might be an appropriate. Uh, bump here for uh, what the Illinois General Assembly accomplished in its uh, extended spring special pandemic session. On the phone with me is Sarah Feigenholz, Democratic State Senator from Chicago. Um, just just real quick, when you touched on, on, on kind of a collegiality maybe enforced by the strange 
those things that lawmakers were forced to do because of the pandemic and health rules. But I'm wondering too, is is some of that maybe just a switch from having been in the House to the to the state Senate? No, I, you know, I, I have always worked across the aisle, and, and I know that it certainly seems like there's a lot of partisanship and a lot of bickering going on, but frankly, 98% of the time we are working with our colleagues on the other side of the aisle and are like-minded. It's Some of it is, you know, we really do get along with them more than people think. <laughs> Each other, we and and this and I have to say this week was really special. I mean, I I felt it was different, and I felt like we all had some very serious purpose. Um, we are not a group. The legislature, people who run for public office and serve, typically are not the retreating type, if you will. Um, you know, they are like Marines. They stay in. They they fight. They want to get to yes. You know, they we're here to protect our constituents from the storm respond to the needs that they have and you know i mean we we got a lot accomplished on the on the front end first of all we made our full pension payment right we uh, you know leader brady said we did the hospital assessment we came to an agreement on workers comp we did tiff legislation and as you know you know i was responding in my district to um, small business, the great bars and restaurants around Wrigley Field and um, uh, in my community that are uh, looking for tools to stay um, innovative and keep afloat during this pandemic while they are closed. So we passed, of course, uh, a couple of measures that will help them at the Department of Revenue and the ILCC to, you know, around to stave off some of the costs they have before they're open, including giving them the opportunity to um, sell cocktails to go, which probably was a very popular uh, bill this year. Uh, yeah, that probably was the 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 most popular bill this year. And uh, I mentioned to to Dean Richards this morning. I thought it was you know initially it was kind of like a, a clever idea to try to help. Uh, bars and restaurants out and then uh, the bar and restaurant uh, community were like yes please uh you know we need we need any kind of lifeline we can get exactly it's true and we're going to watch hopefully this week the mayor and the governor uh, sort of work through the really fine details of what an opening looks like i think i think that um we can't talk about things in the context of open or close, okay? I think that we're seeing that neither, we're, we're in a place right now where we need to sort of do this in gradations. And people need to follow those rules within those gradations um, for us to be able to do this successfully. I just heard a statistic about Wisconsin who opened, as you know, very quickly. The bars were jammed with people. And they have just had a spike. And that is something I don't believe any of us want. I know the governor doesn't want it. I know the mayor doesn't want it. And so I think that they're going to do this carefully. Um, having said that, giving an opportunity for ours to, um, uh, you know, innovate and responsibly and safely deliver uh, mixed drinks with all the deliveries that they're doing um, is something that we are going to allow them to do. 
and um, continue to try and give them more tools to stay open while we're trying to figure this all out. Um, and let's not forget, we paid it. So we paid our pension cocktails to go. And in all the years that you and I have been in Springfield, see, you stole there, you stole my next question. Come right on, there. I'm going to do it. <laughs> okay, go it's for mine. it. Give it to me. So, I mean, I know that you have probably been around around the same time as I have, where there was a time when gaming was on, was being debated, and the mayor of the city of Chicago didn't want a Chicago casino, or at that time, when gambling was being permitted in Illinois, uh, it was boats that left a dock, remember? And um, I don't think Rich Daly ever wanted any part of it. And, you know, so then Rom came, and um, he... You saw what happened there. We, you know, the governor Quinn vetoed it, and and then finally we pass. You know, Lori Lightfoot, literally a year and a week after she became mayor, put it together because she's so she's such a great leader, an amazing, just amazing woman. Um, I don't have to tell you that, and was able to put this amazing deal together, which ultimately results in revenue and jobs and paying our police and fire pension in the city of Chicago so that we can honestly, hopefully hold our breath and pray that our property taxes don't go up to pay for that. So she has come up with a great solution. And um, it, you saw the vote totals. The part is, It was a complete bipartisan um, effort in both the House and the Senate. And um, I, am, I never thought I would see it. And I am glad it happened on Lori Lightfoot's watch. Well, and and I have to admit, you know, uh, even even these days when the rumblings about trying to get that uh, uh, tax uh, easing of the tax structure done, I had my serious doubts whether any legislation would see the light of day, particularly, you know, in this kind of truncated special session that we were in and knowing the history of gaming legislation and it becomes a christmas tree and it falls over of its own weight Uh, but i think one of the drivers on it uh was the fact of as as is always is how do you sell a chicago issue to downstaters uh unless there's something in it for them and i think that goes back to the original uh, funding scheme of uh, the capital program, the infrastructure program of, of tying uh, state share of casino revenues uh, into helping fund a statewide uh, public works program. Well, not only that, but that's true. We also solved the down, a downstate problem during the session um, with the consolidation of a, a bunch of pension systems remember so we and so the chicago legislators happily put a vote on that and we're waiting in november to try and try and make this drop this tax that was in the and and we failed to do it and i feel that you know with the leadership of some of our downstate colleagues they wanted to help chicago and i also think that (coughs) excuse me from from this tragedy from this like incredible moment none of us ever thought we would experience in our lives in while we're all floating in uncharted territory here uh waters that everybody sort of came together and said we got to do this we've got a finite number of days here we have to problem solve 
this is going to help Chicago. You know, this is going to help the hospitality industry, who is hemorrhaging the most. You know, we had in in in, in Illinois, we have five hundred and ninety-five thousand jobs in the hospitality industry. Over three hundred thousand of them have been lost in three months in this pandemic. So. You know, we you know we are a destination. We are a culinary and tourist destination. We now are the home of the James Beard Awards. People come and flock to our city for our bars, our restaurants, for all our sports teams, for conventions. This is a lot of money in the bank. That is revenue. Okay, so we have got to do everything we can to keep this industry alive and to keep the culture of our city you know this isn't houston where you have a bunch of chain restaurants you know this is the home of rick bayless and you know we have some of the best chefs in the country here in chicago and we have to keep it that way we have to do whatever it takes to keep these people afloat well and that's kind of and and people who've listened to the show and and obviously i've had sam toy on and 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 I've got you know Michael Jacobson from the hotel uh, and the lodging association coming on next, but it's it's like what is what is the city and its cultural appeal and as a convention site, visiting site, a hospitality site? What is that going to look like? You know, is there going to be a new mindset, a different mindset of people? Yeah. Well, you know, I. I think a lot of it, I think a lot of it depends on a vaccine that is effective and available widely. Um, I think it's going to take a long time to build that confidence. And I think that um, Michael Jacobson is probably going, my constituent, Michael Jacobson, and I have talked extensively about this. I think we're going to start to see how Europe did this. And, uh, and bring some ideas that are not necessarily um, on our radar screen yet um, um, to the fore for discussion. I think that this is what we are going to begin. We have to be innovative. We have to reinvent ourselves, and we have to do whatever it takes, short of endangering lives, by the way. But um, there, you, you will probably hear some very interesting ideas from Mr. Jacobson in the next segment. I'm that- confident. That's Sarah Feigenholz, Democratic State Senator from Chicago. Senator, as always, thank you so much for joining the Sunday Spin. It's my pleasure, Rick. Take care. Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. Roger, so good to hear those uh, 80-degree temperatures uh, from your weather forecast. Wow. And it is absolutely gorgeous sitting here up in the 18th floor Skyline Studio overlooking Chicago. Even looks like a bit more car traffic uh, out there. Everybody kind of just getting out and uh, ending the hibernation for a little bit, if you will. But obviously we want all of you to still be safe. Uh, and we know the rules, and uh, hopefully let's all play by the rules. Well, joining me now on the show is Michael Jacobson. Michael is the president and CEO of the Illinois Hotel and Lodging Association, and uh, Michael, I, I, I guess you already have the uh, the ball teed up for you by uh, Sarah Feigenholz for, uh, for our discussion. 
Uh, thank you no so much. Kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Not only is she my senator, she's a great spokesperson for me and a great, uh, great champion of hospitality. So I, I, great I, to I, have her lead me in. Yeah, I didn't know you needed an agent, but uh, apparently we know <laughs> we know that. Well, I, I, I wanted to have you on for a couple of reasons, and and uh, one is obviously how important the hospitality industry is to this city and this state's economy, and. You know, we obviously we've heard uh, how desperate restaurants are, um, bars and restaurants, and obviously Chicago being such a great food city, and me being a foodie. Uh, but you know, when you look at the fact that um, McCormick Place is basically dormant till at least August, uh, when you look at this city and what it derives from visitors and tourism and conventions and it's basically you know we don't like to use the analogy about a light switch to reopen the economy but that's the was a light switch turning it off and i guess as i kind of posed the the question to uh, senator feigenholtz is you know how how do these how do hotels hang on I think many, many may we might lose per, uh, um, uh, permanently, and I think that what we're seeing right now, to your point, that there's not going to be a light switch, but we have a strong feeling that there could be a dimmer switch. And I think Senator Feigenholt said it perfectly that there, it's not going to be open or closed. It's going to be a gradual rebuild process. And many of our conversations with the governor's office and the mayor's office already have been that we, there is a, a big difference between where we are today and the day we find a vaccine. Of course, we're really, we're really hopeful that we find a vaccine sooner rather than later. But until that day comes, I don't think anybody's arguing that we necessarily want to hold a large meeting or a convention this week. Um, but there is a long time frame between now and the day a vaccine's found. So we have had conversations and we have health experts, um, Senator Feigenholz alluded to what they're doing in Europe and even what they're doing in other states. There are experts that say that this can be done in a safe way. Definitely not nearly to the scale of what some of our larger conventions um, have been historically, but we could start generating some revenue and some business in our hotels and at McCormick Place with social distancing, with additional protocols put into place so that we could at least hang on and throw a lifeline to our hospitality industry. Well, where uh, under the, the current definition, where do, where do hotels fit in as far as a business? So hotels were never forced to be shut down. We were always considered an essential business, mainly because there were some people that had essential trips that they had to take, uh, whether they were doctors or medical professionals coming into the city to help with the COVID response, whether they were first responders that didn't necessarily want to go home and expose their families uh, if they've been exposed to COVID. Uh, many of our hotels offered their rooms up at a discounted rate or some even for free in those cases. Um, so hotels Hotels were never, were never forced to be shut down. Instead, what you've seen is many of them voluntarily choose to shut down just because our occupancy rates in downtown Chicago have been in the single digits. And really, anytime you fall really below 30%, it doesn't make business sense to keep your doors open. Um, what is, I mean, do you see a fallout? You know, again down the line because we're this isn't a binary 
you know, choice of open close. But do you see a fallout where we lose uh, hotel rooms, where we lose hotels in the city? Absolutely. I think we will lose um, some. Uh, I don't. I think it's too early to tell and see how long this is really going to prolong itself. I don't know if hotels will be allowed to reopen or really start reopening some of their operations when it comes to group meetings here in the next month and the next two months, and that's really what drives more than half of our business. So while that is completely banned right now, uh, gatherings over 10 people, that's really why our conversations are around that, doing it in a safe way, because when it makes up such a good percentage of our business, business, many hotels won't reopen until that time comes. And if that keeps getting prolonged longer and longer throughout the rest of the summer and into the fall, the risks go up exponentially that a hotel just frankly won't reopen. You're already seeing several hotels across the city that have already been sent to special servicers to begin the foreclosure process because already they're starting to miss their loan payments. Is the state, uh, I mean, what is, what is, the relationship between the industry and the state and with Governor Pritzker and, you know, looking at the uh, reopening plans that the governor has presented. It's good. We we are in communication. We've had uh, multiple conversations with the governor's office and other members of, of um, the state's team. I will say that I think that because we weren't one of the industries that were forced to shut down, I think the emphasis was on some of those sectors and industries that we, they at least wanted to get reopened in some sense. And since we were always allowed to re- uh, stay open, um, I think that we're kind of in the next phase of um, really digging deep and having in-depth conversations. Um, but again, we're, it's mostly been really focusing on the health component. And I think that taking a step back, I think that's the most important thing to emphasize. Of course, there's an economic component to this. There's people lives, people's livelihoods at stake in all of this. But most importantly, a job is only as important as if you have your health and safety. So nobody is wants Chicago or Illinois to be the next hot spot for COVID-19. So that's why we're really leading with health experts and their guidance to say it can be done if these additional protocols are put into place. So it's really kind of just a, a really deep educational effort and really connecting our doctors and health experts with the ones that are really leading the state's response. Well, and that's that's been the difficulty in all of this is trying to balance uh, lives and livelihood. Exactly. And, and I mean, it, we're in the Memorial Day weekend right now. It's really the uh, kickoff to the summer tourism season traditionally. And uh, just this past week leading up to Memorial Day weekend, the U.S. Travel Association released a new study that showed that travel-related unemployment is already at 51% double the national unemployment rate. So it shows you what dire straits we're already in. And I'm hearing more and more from hoteliers that they're even going to have to take additional job cuts from what they originally had to do a month or two ago. And um, the, the, the stakes are so high right now of temporary layoffs potentially turning into permanent layoffs. So that's why we're trying to strike that balance where health and safety always have and always will be our top concern, but we're trying to put people, at least some component of our workforce, back to work as quickly as we can. Well, and I know, you know, some uh, hotels, I believe, receive the uh, Paytech Protection Program uh, bridge funds for to try to keep employees hired and that kind of thing but um i i 
want to ask you, we're going to take a break here in just a moment, but when we come back, I want to ask you about, you know, is there enough uh, being done specifically to address the hospitality industry as a whole uh, when it comes to looking at what the U.S. House, what the U.S. Senate are talking about as far as federal aid in Washington. We're speaking with Michael Jacobson, President and CEO of the Illinois Hotel and Lodging Association. I'm Rick Pearson. This is your Sunday Spin. Three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred is our phone number. I'm Rick Pearson, and this is your Sunday Spin. We're talking about the hotel and lodging industry and the pandemic's effects on that with Michael Jacobson. He is the president and CEO of the Illinois Hotel and Lodging Association. And, uh, Michael, before the break, I, I posed the question about whether you feel that uh, your industry or the hospitality industry in a whole as a whole, has is, is, is gotten the attention of federal lawmakers as they look at uh, the potential of a next uh, coronavirus relief package. I think the Paycheck Protection Program was certainly a good start, and it was definitely helpful to many of our hotel owners and restaurant owners as well. And I think that that leads to a common misperception that so many people think that when they see Marriott, Hilton, or Hyatt on a building that uh, those companies own those hotels, when for the most part, most hotels are individually owned by what are considered small businesses. Many of them are owned by Illinoisans. Uh, that might be your neighbors. And I think that is a common misperception. So those small business opportunities like the Paycheck Protection Program uh, were definitely helpful. Uh, as many other industries and businesses have, have voiced their concerns, we had some significant challenges around it, uh, particularly about how to qualify for some of the loan forgiveness. Uh, one of the provisions that you have to rehire your staff by June 30th, and of course, many of our hotels won't even be reopened by June 30th if they shut their doors because of the continued stay-at-home order and some of the other regulations. So I think it was a good start. Don't get me wrong. I think we're, we're trying to improve that program, but also really start looking at what additional opportunities there are out, are out there. Uh, when you look at hotels and restaurants and the broader hospitality industry, you mentioned it earlier, we were one of the first industries impacted by this, and we're going to be one of the last industries to come out of this. And I think uh, similar to the airlines and the recovery package that they were given, I think um, the hospitality industry is going to need some direct financial support from the government because not only is it our our employees that are suffering through this, I mentioned that our unemployment rate's at 51% within the travel industry, but also look at the tax base that we have um, that is really just dried up overnight. The tax revenue that is generated by hotels at the city level, the county level, the state level, uh, that money is vanished. Uh, so it's not even just at the federal level. I think the implications of hotels being shut down and losing such significant business is going to impact every Illinois and every Chicago and whether or not you do or don't work in our industry. Well, and you brought up about the, the assistance to the airline industry. And, and my thought was, is well, that's like that's one leg of kind of the hospitality industry, but it, it ignores the other body parts. Yeah, 
yeah, it's a very important leg. Don't get me wrong. Right, uh, right. We, we need them. <laughs> but, it, again, you have restaurants, you have hotels, you have our museums and attractions. There's there's attractions throughout the city. I think of small business owners like Chicago's First Lady Cruises that we all kind of take advantage of. That It's a, one of the best experiences you can do in the city. Go and take an architecture cruise down the river. They've been uh, suspended their operations. So there's just there's operations and there's types of businesses across the city that thrive and depend on tourism that have been brought to their knees in recent months. Now, I understand that uh, your uh, association has kind of come up with a, a safe, clean and safe guidance for opening uh, for for not that you've ever been closed, but but just for kind of moving into an expanded phase here and. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that and, and, you know, what are the insurances of somebody going into a hotel about who's concerned about, uh, you know, we're all scared kind of thing. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a fair sense of anxiety, I think. Anytime you're going to venture outside of your house right now, whether it's checking into a hotel or getting on the CTA, you're going to just think twice about what the cleaning standards of whatever you're using is. And so we wanted to get ahead of it. All of our hotel brands, each individual brand, have come out with their own guidelines and their own guidance for hotels. But we really wanted to coalesce that and also incorporate input from Chicago Department of Public Health as well as uh, the state level. So we kind of customized those and incorporated some of that local feedback and came out with our own recommendations to send to hotels. And it's really meant for two things. First of all, our employees. Our employees are the lifeblood of our hotels. We would be nothing without them. And that's really what you remember when you check into a hotel. It's not necessarily how nice the guest room is. It's how great the experience is and the hospitality. So making sure that our employees are protected and are safe when they come back to work, we know that that's obviously of the utmost importance. But also we're going to have to kind of change their mentality and make sure that they realize that they're being kept safe. And then, of course, it's consumer confidence, making sure that guests are not only made made to feel that they are safe, but that they are safe when they check in. From the moment when they walk into our hotel to mo- the moment they walk out, I think a hotel stay is going to look very different from what you have come to expect and if you checked into a hotel three months ago. How so? So from the minute you walk in, you're going to start seeing social distancing. You're going to start seeing not only signage, but you're going to start seeing tape on the floors and markings on the floors to make sure you're not getting too close to anybody. You're going to see hand sanitizer or wipes put throughout the property, uh, especially in high-focus areas like elevator banks, so that, of course, we're going to have staff cleaning those elevator buttons, but you'll be able to grab a wipe or use hand sanitizer yourself and, and do an extra cleaning. When you check into a guest room, a lot of the things that are kind of non- or that are single use, so like pens and paper or uh, magazines or room service delivery menus are going to be taken out because those stay from uh, stay to stay. Uh, Also, housekeeping. Housekeeping is going to be limited to request only so that if you want housekeeping, you can certainly request it and we'll take care of that request, but we're really trying to limit the amount that we're exposing our employees and going into a guest room. Similarly, room service, when you order room service, you might have gotten 
used to them rolling it in and placing it in your room, that will now be left at the door so that, again, that employee is not forced to go into a guest room and potentially expose himself if, God forbid, that guest were to have COVID. So that's just kind of a small sampling, but some of these documents and brand guidelines that have come out are 30, 40, 50 pages, and it just shows how seriously the hotels are taking this to the extreme levels of even Marriott has announced that they're going to be using hospital-grade uh, cleaning techniques like electra- electrostatic sprayers that, again, hospitals use to clean their rooms after a patient is discharged. Marriott's going to be using those in between each stay now in their guest rooms. So it, it's really comforting, again, for both our employees and our guests that in many cases, when you step foot into a hotel room, it will be probably cleaner than your own bedroom at home. <laughs> I mean, how much of this is going to be the new normal? Just, I, I mean, think much of it. I mean, we're obviously we're staring this thing right in the eye, you know, and, and by, by close proximity. But, you know, in, in as the months and whatever, even, you know, let's hope it's soon, but a, a post-vaccine era, uh, I mean, are, is 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 our mental set going to be just changed completely because of this? I think to a degree, yes. And I think some of the techniques and protocols you see put in place will become permanent, not necessarily all 50 pages. Um, I think some of those are really focused on the short term until we do find a vaccine. But I do say, I mean, hotels were always proud of the level of safety and cleanliness within our properties. That, that's something that we always prided ourselves and took very seriously. But knowing that we're doubling down on this, I do think that many of the protocols you see put in place might become permanent. It's just making us take a second look at what was already being done successfully and just making it more safe and more clean when you walk through a hotel. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to me when to think about what uh, makes sense is a, a housekeeper uh, wearing PPE. Absolutely. I think not just a housekeeper. I think every staff, especially in the short term, every staff you see and, frankly, every guest you see should be wearing a mask. Uh, Again, that's some of the stuff that I think you'll eventually see uh, change as as we continue to progress and and treatments or vaccine are found. Um, But, yeah, when you walk into a hotel anytime in the near future, you will see our staff have the proper PPE to make sure that we do protect them and keep them safe. Now, obviously, we're still under the uh, guidelines from the the governor on the the, the 10 people rule. But, you know, when I looked at the floor of the Bank of Springfield uh, Convention Center, which was the temporary home of the Illinois House, uh, there you've got 118 people gathered basically for a convention. And I wonder, now, obviously, there were Department of Public Health guidelines. Each lawmaker sat at a six-foot table. Uh, there was the requirement for everybody to wear a mask, except for the one uh, rebellious legislator who was then thrown out for the day uh, to, to make his point. Uh, but uh, when I look at when I look at how they were able to assemble, uh, does that speak uh, maybe bode well for maybe some kind of gatherings that could be hosted by you know hotels and conventions? I think you nailed it on the head. I think that what we just witnessed over the last three or four days in Springfield 
was a convention. It was held at the convention center. It was a convention. Was it a typical convention that you might think of in your head? No, absolutely not. And there were many, many additional protocols put into place, and it was done in a safe way. So I think that just proves that it can be done with additional steps that are taken. And that's that's some of the modest common sense guidance that we're offering to the state to say, yes, it's not going to be the most enjoyable experience, but it's going to be we can take those steps and kind of build off a public health guidance to at least start generating some sort of meetings that are essential, that that organizations feel that they have to do, uh, and start generating some revenue to preserve the livelihoods within within our hotels. But I think you just, you, you nailed it in the fact that our legislators just showed us that a convention can be done in a safe way and a responsible way um, where both them and their staff were kept safe. So that's, like I said, we're trying to start the faucet slowly. And I think our, our conversations with both the governor's office and mayor's office are promising the fact that we could potentially start some sort of business and get away from the arbitrary gu- guidelines of a strict limit on gatherings of 10 or 50 people. Instead, do it more based on the occupants or the capacity of the given room or convention center where that meeting is being held. And I I guess the sense, and I'm not trying to predict anything, but as I think we've seen really in the maybe the last week or so where we've seen the governor kind of show a bit more flexibility to some of these guidelines that if, you know, the metrics still hold as they're holding that kind of thing where... uh, I, I, it seems to me that there's the give and take is going to even out a little bit more than the strict guidelines that we've seen. I think so. I think the governor's team has been receptive. They, they're they open to conversation as long as you can lead your conversation with health guidance. Um, I think the last thing anyone is trying to do is strictly focus on the economics. Again, that's important, but ultimately it, it comes down to the importance of health and safety. But I think also the governor during his campaign and after he became governor, he's very proud to call himself the chief marketing officer of the state of Illinois. And I think um, this is an opportunity for him to, of course, focus on the health of Illinoisans at the, at the forefront, but also figure out ways that we can responsibly restart our economy, knowing that we're, we're several months down. Again, going back to that tax revenue, we, we've gone now two months without generating really a penny of tax revenue for the state, and we're one of the largest taxpayers in the state when it comes to hotel tourism tax. So uh, I think that he knows the delicate balance that needs to be struck, and hopefully we'll continue our conversations here in the next several days and weeks and figure out a way to safely reopen some of our meetings and conventions and again not necessarily next week but here's definitely before the day of vaccine is found and hotel hotel motel taxes they fund a lot of different things in this state michael jacobson president and ceo of the illinois hotel and lodging association thank you so much for joining me thanks rick see you in person next time now back to the tribunes rick pearson it's the sunday spin on 720 WGN. Welcome to the bonus hour of your Sunday spin. I'm Rick Pearson with the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio on this beautiful, beautiful Sunday evening of the Memorial Day holiday. Um, earlier, I played uh, some sound of uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo 
saying that the firing of the department uh, State Department's Inspector General was not retaliation. Of course, this is four uh, Inspector Generals in uh, the Cabinet branch of the federal government that have been fired on Friday by the President. And uh, last week, Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said Trump's firings of Inspector Generals have become routine because he doesn't like investigations into his administration. Here's House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. So I think it's a reflection of the complete disregard for the truth of the of the Trump administration. As you know, there are four, at least four, IGs that the president has dismissed late on a, the Friday night special, you know, in the dark of night, here it comes. And now some under, misun, uh, questioning about what he's doing with the Secretary of Transportation, who's been asked to do some uh, investigation, and it's questionable in terms of how they're shuffling that over there. Inspector generals play an important part of the integrity of our country. They were placed, it was passed after Watergate to make sure that there was a uh, truth finder in terms of waste, fraud, abuse, and any other violations uh, of the law in agencies of government. Uh, That has been respected until now. That's House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Meanwhile, on the presidential campaign front, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden appeared last week on an African-American podcast, The Breakfast Club, where he sought to make his case for black voters. But Biden being Biden, well, here's kind of how the end of that interview went. Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. I will. It's a long way until November. We got more questions you got more questions, but I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. It don't have nothing to do with Trump. It has to do with the fact I want something for my community. I would love to see Take you. Take a look at my record, man. I extended the voting racks 25 years. I have a record that is second to none. So that, of course, prompted the former vice president to apologize for saying he was sounding very cavalier. Uh, one of the interesting things was that uh, this actually was recorded that, the day before it aired, as it were. So the uh, Biden campaign was aware of how this ended, but they chose not to respond until some of the criticism had already surfaced uh, after that was aired. Well, we're going to bring things back local now, and joining me on the phone is Michael Cabanargi. He is commissioner uh, commissioner on the Cook County Board of Review. Uh, commissioner, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Rick, thanks for having me. Um, you have been working on this for a while, and uh, I guess we should say in successfully, and it's the idea of uh, granting a waiver of late fees for 60 days for the second installment of the property tax bill, which was just announced, uh, due to the problems that we're all having in this economic climate of, uh, of the pandemic. Um, this, I, I mean, I could say it sounds like it's a no-brainer, uh, but it's not that easy. No, it's not. It's not. And, you know, the origins of this were it was the early days of the pandemic and the Board of Review was wrapping up its uh, reassessment and its appeals. Um, and and we had to move everyone out of the office. And while we we're doing it, um, millions of people were losing their job. And my phone was ringing off the hook from homeowners and renters 
um, who weren't able to go to work and, and make uh, money for rent and food and utilities and wondering, I've got a bill coming up. How do I pay this property tax bill? So we realize that pro- providing some property tax relief during this crisis is one of the most direct ways we can help these struggling families and landlords and businesses. And they shouldn't have to wait to appeal their property taxes to my office before they get relief. And we know they can't count on the Trump administration to understand the needs of low-income and middle-class people. The local government needed to act. Well, and uh, property tax, of course, you know, you would be well aware, is everybody hates them. And to me, this is more of a, I guess, an indictment of, of how much people hate property taxes, because in this economy, in this pandemic-driven economy that we're in, there's property taxes were onerous before. Now, this is literally homelessness, uh, job loss, yep. homelessness. Yep. And, and listen, it's homeowners, it's renters who want to work with their landlords. It's renters who want to work with the landlords of that three flat to say, I've always been a good tenant. I've always paid on time. You've never had problems with me. But the landlord says, listen, I got a property tax bill coming on August 1. And I'd love to give you some flexibility, but I got to pay that bill. The hope here is now that that tenant and that landlord can work together to say, now you've got until October 1 to pay that tax bill. So hopefully that tenant and that landlord could work it out because the tenant can go back to work, uh, make some money, work some extra hours pay their rent, the landlord can pay the tax bill, and, and we can give everybody some relief um, while, we, while we see what's in store as the economy unfreezes and we all move forward. Is 60 days enough? It's a start. You know, it's a start. It's a balancing act as well. I mean, you know that, and you mentioned about property taxes. It, it's, it's how we fund local government in Illinois. It's how we fund our schools and our parks and our libraries. And unfortunately, Illinois over relies on property taxes to fund money aspects of the government, most notably our school, which need that, schools, which need the money to, to operate in the fall. So this is a balancing act between giving some flexibility and some breathing room to homeowners and landlords and businesses, uh, and then also uh, making sure that our local governments have the resources they need in the fall. We're speaking with Michael Carbonarchi. He is commissioner on the Cook County Board of Review. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Joining me on the phone, Michael Cavanarchi. He is commissioner on the Cook County Board of Review. We're talking about the recent action by the Cook County Board to uh, waive late fees for 60 days for the second installment of property tax bills uh, as a result of the uh, COVID-19 economy that we're in. Um, and, uh, you know, Michael, I... I raised this issue throughout uh, today, uh, not just here on the program uh, during the governor's press conference. Um, the the issue of, uh, you know, granted the state only has so much money, um, but yet in putting together its budget, uh, I think there are legitimate questions about uh, doing more to supplant local governments, uh, in part maybe to do more about offering uh, this kind of property tax relief or extended property tax relief, um, as well as to kind of buffer them from the costs uh, of the first responders, and in, in especially in areas, uh, other parts of the state, where they're looking at having to lay these people off. 
Yeah, and, and, and this is, and you've talked about it, and I know you've written about it too, Rick. Uh, Illinois over relies on property taxes. Uh, with the different revenue streams of income taxes, sales, use, uh, hotel taxes, all of them plummeting to zero or close to zero now, uh, local governments, in particular Chicago public schools, um, rely on property taxes to, to keep the lights on. And uh, as the revenues have dropped, their needs have just grown. CPS needs more technology. It needs to uh, make a, a larger investment in, in its infrastructure and local governments, the city of Chicago and the municipalities in Cook County. Their police and fire and emergency workers need more equipment. They need more overtime hours. They need more training. Um, so this is uh, the idea of, of waiving the late fees sees that says that the homeowner and the property owner will get some relief, but that local government will still get their money um, and they'll get it almost on time because one thing that's important here is that more than two-thirds of the property taxes in Cook County are paid into escrow. So that money is already sitting in an account. And once we mail the bill, the escrow agent is obligated to release the money. So two-thirds of the money will come in on time. And a large amount of the money will come in on time even if we waive the late fee. So what we're saying to local governments is we're, we're giving you four months' notice to tell you that you're going to get 80, 85% of your money on time, and you'll get the remaining money within 60 days. And it's fair also to those local governments because when we work with them, we know they don't spend 100% of that money when they get it. Um, so it's tough in government sometimes to find that balance, but I think we found it here where we're being fair to the renter, to that homeowner, to that small business person who is really looking at that next property tax bill and holding their breath going, I got to figure out how to pay it. We're going to give them a little bit more time for that business person to open their doors, sell more product, sell more service, keep the lights on, get their business going, pay that property tax bill for that renter they can work with their landlord. And for those local governments, they'll get the resources they need to provide those local services. Yeah, and I thought it was very interesting, too, in, in, in looking at this about uh, the fact that there there was such a, a high number of uh, uh, tax collections that were in escrow because that obviously it's not just shutting local governments off of, of their cash flow that you know you you are giving them a good chunk of the money that they need to operate and as you said they don't need all of that money up front uh, so it's 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 more of a cushioned kind of situation for these local governments yeah and and you know, I want to also say this is a team effort. President Preckwinkle and her team and the county board um, all jumped to this when, when I brought the idea to them and we ran with it. This is something that we've, to my knowledge, we've never done before at the county. Uh, and we're taking advantage of a state statute that says if there's been a declaration of an emergency for a county, the county board can meet to waive the late fee. Um, I'm not aware of another time we've had a, a countywide declaration of disaster for Cook, and we wanted to do this. And uh, I haven't read the final bill, but I know that the General Assembly passed something uh, yesterday, I understand. Yes. Um, and and, you, and obviously this is your beat, Rick. I'm just a simple county official here. Um, uh, but I understand the General <laughs> Assembly passed something uh, to this effect that will uh, make it easier uh, and quicker for uh, some of the downstate counties who want to do this uh, to act as well. The nice thing is if that this is available, and this is another tool, if we see another spike, if, if we have to go through this again, and I know the governor has daily briefings, it kind of brings this point up and over and over, we're all doing this on the fly and we're learning on the fly. We know that this is a tool we can use in the future if we're in a similar situation, is to give homeowners and business owners some relief by waiving those late fees temporarily. 
Well, this wasn't only just a, a kind of a cooperative effort on the county level, but you were actually uh, working with the members of the city council as well on this. Absolutely. You know, and, and uh, a shout out to the members of the Progressive Caucus, the Latino Caucus and the Black Caucus, Alderman Byron Citro Lopez, and Jason Irvin and others. We've had a number of conversations. Alderman Matt Martin. Um, we're all trying to deliver the same benefit. We want to help homeowners. We want to help those renters. We want to help folks who are really struggling. And on the county side, this is a tool we can bring to the conversation. We can help people now immediately and again it's a local solution we, we can't keep looking to washington dc and and crossing our fingers that donald trump's going to send salvation to us local government needs to act um and you mentioned on the bill that passed last night but apparently uh there were some conflicting uh states attorneys uh opinions on whether counties had the authority to do to to waive this and that the legislation that they approved last night was basically an effort uh to clarify that yes they do have that ability in in times of a emergency disaster declaration excellent excellent yeah and you know i know my way as chair of the board of review i know my way around the illinois property tax code pretty well this is a section that as my understanding is mostly used downstate when there's a natural disaster a tornado rolls through a community and the county board meets quickly and says hey anybody wants to apply we'll, we'll waive their late fees there's no reason that doesn't apply to us now with this pandemic the same fundamentals are there there's been a declaration of an emergency the county board wants to meet to vote to waive the late fees so Again, we have to be creative in these times and take a look at the statutes. And I, you know, I'm so excited the General Assembly stepped in and, and she said, just make it easier for us all to, to use the, the laws we need to here. Well, and, and I, I, I hate to harp on this, but it's, I'm wondering if there isn't more that can be done on the property tax side uh, just because of uh, it's, the, it's the last thing people want to deal with right now. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and listen, I'm open to more ideas. I've talked to members of, of the legislature and county board commissioners and city council members. And as I said, everybody wants to look at everything we can do. Uh, one of the struggles is, as I said, we over rely on property taxes. And as other revenue streams have dwindled to nothing, um, property taxes are really the only reliable revenue stream that's out there. Uh, and even that reliability is, is being stressed as well. Well, and that's um, that's what I mean is, is you know, even and granted, uh, we do have a diverse taxing structure in this state. But as you said, the over-reliance on property taxes, particularly for schools, but also, you know, it's the, the one of the fundamental means of, of funding local governments. And, you know, local governments, as I said, they're they're in a stress. Schools are in a stress uh I'm, I'm not sure that it's local governments that are getting enough attention here uh, on that relief valve as as the states clamor for the money yep and and again coming to a solution here to waive the late fees i think we struck that balance where we can help the homeowner and the renter and that small business owner who's worried about their property tax bill but not handicap local governments who are saying listen our 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 revenue needs have only gone up our the expenses we incur are only going up to run the school or a park district or a library or what have you um so this 
you know, it's it's a fair balance and it helps people right now. And, you know, if the General Assembly can continue to work with us and, and make it easier to use this going forward, all the better. Well, and that's why, I mean, there were some uh, efforts that were attempted in the General Assembly about a six-month moratorium on rent and those kinds of things, which seem to go a little bit you know, way too far because you have to start looking at issues of unintended consequences. And, you know, it, it is kind of a, a chain and, and, and no one, no one wants to see anybody uh, homeless. Nobody wants to see anybody kicked out, those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, I've, there are some moratoriums that have been put into place. Uh, the state did end up in the budget throwing in some money for uh, people who need some kind of rent assistance or uh, housing assistance money that they increase the pool of money there. But I still have to wonder, you know, with all the uncertainty of, of this pandemic, of the economy, of jobs, of the fact that this is not a light switch reopening of the economy, um, where government is going to have to step in and take a greater role just because, that's what government is supposed to do uh, at the bottom line is, is help those who need most the help the most. Yeah. And, and, you know, our fundamental job at the board of review is, um, is making sure that homeowners and property owners only pay their fair share in taxes. And as I said, this started because people were calling us at the end of our session, we were wrapping up the largest number of appeals we've ever received at the board. We received 253,000 appeals this year, which would stress us under the best of circumstances. But just as we were wrapping up our review, and we had about eight weeks left in our, our calendar to make sure we got the bill or our review done and our decisions rendered so that the bills can go out timely, COVID-19 shuts us down, and my colleagues Larry Rogers and Dan Patlick and I have to, on the fly, figure out how to move 140 analysts out of the board and work at home, but still work at 100% efficiency. And I can tell you more about setting up VPNs remotely and the hardware that's involved than I ever thought I would know. I'm just a simple attorney. I, yeah, um, no, no, wait, you can't have it both ways. Not simple attorney, simple county <laughs> official. Now, now, now you're the simple IT guy. Uh, so I don't want anybody uh, calling in. I don't want anybody calling in right now for IT support. If they're going to call in, Rick, and say like, "Listen, my screen says this." Kevin Archie is not the guy you're going to go to. We have very smart people at the county who do this. Um, but, you know, I bring it up to say that we were like everyone else. We, we were trying to get our job done for everybody uh, in a real stressful situation. And, you know, we're having discussions this week and the next couple of weeks, my colleagues and I, about what is the new normal look like? Who do we bring back to the board? When do we bring them back? How do we bring them back? What's it going to look like going forward to help homeowners? How do we do hearings uh, when we socially distance uh, and we can't necessarily take paper as easily. How do we do our outreaches? Will we go into communities? We help homeowners file their taxes. Most oftentimes, where language is an issue, they don't have access to technology to file online with us. They want to work with somebody one-on-one. We're figuring out how we're going to provide these services um, in this new world. And, um, you know, we just appreciate everybody being patient and, and letting us figure out how we do it. That's Michael Cabanargi. He is chairman, commissioner of the Cook County Board of Review. Uh, Michael, thank you as always. Right, thank you. Now the Sunday Spin continues on 720 WGN. Here's Rick Pearson. 
Thanks very much, Roger. 80s everywhere, and oh yeah, it's 69. (laughs) Sorry to burst your bubble, buddy. (laughs) As I'm looking out the window, and I'm going, oh, it's going to be 80 degrees. Never mind. You brought that windbreaker, didn't you? (laughs) Yes. No, I didn't. That's the problem. I did not. I didn't think I was going to need it. Oh, Oh, my gosh. You need to do that Emily Latilla, you know. (laughs) Never mind. mind. Yeah. Yes. Thank you much, You're Roger. Welcome. Well, joining me now on the Sunday Spin for our media segment is Mike Miltich. He is Statehouse Correspondent for the Quincy Media Stations in TV stations in Quincy, Peoria, Rockford, and Harrisburg. Mike, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on. It's uh, truly an honor. It's a really cool thing to be a part of this tonight. Oh, you see, you're too young. It's you, you would know it's not really an honor. <laughs> Come on, after after the last uh, week that we've been through with the Springfield uh, coverage, uh, no, this is the easy part tonight. This is the this is the dessert. Nothing honorable about it. Um, well, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and what you're a you're a you're a Tinley Park guy, right? Oh, well, I grew up in the Alsip area. Alsip, so, okay. Oh, jeez, yeah, I'm sorry. That's okay. I knew it was South Burbs. I'm sorry. I got my South Burbs confused. But So, I mean, I was just explaining to a colleague what, like, Quincy Media is. In some respects, it's kind of like it was like the Tribune with the, the newspaper, the TV station, radio station kind of thing, except they've really evolved out, and you've got a heck of a job to do. I mean... <laughs> Absolutely. We uh, really brought together this bureau within the last year. Uh, the discussion started, and I was working as a reporter in Peoria for Heart of Illinois, ABC, and 25 News, WEEK, and I found out this was finally going to be an opportunity for the company and this was something that they'd been hoping for for years. And as soon as I knew that this was a possibility, I I loved state government. I was here in Springfield for grad school and got a public affairs reporting degree, and I wanted to get back. And this was just a great opportunity to do that. So I'm happy that we're here. And, uh, yes, and, and frankly, if anything, we need more coverage of state government rather than less and unfortunately that's been kind of the declining factor these days as we've seen what's been going on uh particularly with the print media so it's the the more eyeballs the better um so after uh after a few hours of sleep last night um i I, i've really been kind of surprised i was surprised that they got as much done as they did in springfield i mean this is this is not a, a, a legislative body that moves quickly. Uh, but I did, and, and maybe uh, Senator Sarah Feigenholz touched on this a little bit, I, I did detect a bit more sense of duty than what you would see during a, a normal legislative session. I, I would agree with that. Uh, this, this is the third time that I've covered the end of a session. Uh, obviously, this is the first special session any of us have seen of this sort. Uh, there were many points where action was very slow, and things were much different with the House uh, 
down a few streets away from the Capitol at the Bank of Springfield Center. Uh, that was very awkward for uh, treatment and movement of uh, bills because something would pass in the Senate. We had to wait quite a significant amount of time before they could even touch it over in the House. So I, I do think that there were some uh, high moments where they were working quickly, but there were also many moments where members just walked around uh, several moments of recess. But I do think that they knew what they were there to do during the special session. Uh, I, I was shocked, honestly, that it wrapped up this morning. I thought that we could be possibly uh, wrapping up tonight. Oh, I, I I actually thought we could go well into another week, um, uh, particularly, and obviously it didn't happen, but particularly when it looked early earlier that there might be a possibility of Washington actually doing something and that they might stick around uh, or, or even try to come back. Uh, if it looked like there would be some kind of a federal aid bill coming out of uh, out of D.C., um, so I, I I thought either they would try to get it quick and and just roll over any opposition and get it done on Friday. Uh, so knowing that they didn't, I, I had every expectation that we were going to be up until two or three this morning. <laughs> yes, that was quite something. I, I was over in uh, the house uh the pool reporter there with amanda benicki and we we were both there the whole entire day and we got to leave and we realized wow the senate is isn't even done yet <laughs> some of my colleagues were over there waiting throughout the early morning hours uh we we all uh got home very late and we were able to get a, a few minimal hours before i had to hop over to the capitol for the press conference today with the governor Yes, which you were uh, the pool reporter on, which is uh, part of why I asked asked a question. But we're going we're to talk about that in the second part of this interview. But I, I guess I I was curious what your take was about, um, along with that sense of duty, if people, you know, we had legislators primarily on the Republican side clamoring that they should be called into session that the the legislature needs to be a co-equal branch of government in this pandemic reaction and yeah they did the budget they they did you know a number of things but when it comes to the pandemic response other than uh, some items about workers comp some items in the budget i'm not sure that that statement of being a co-equal branch of government actually really surfaced yes uh, a lot of members actually from the republican party specifically in the house where i saw it uh they weren't necessarily done last night uh they they kept saying that we should be doing more uh some even mentioned that they felt uh lawmakers weren't even trying to help out uh specifically uh, in regards to the budget um others uh earlier on in the the week of special session the senate republican caucus held a press conference outside saying that they wanted to make sure that there was an opportunity to discuss the restore illinois that reopening plan uh, to possibly vote on that and get get a chance for lawmakers to discuss that because that is where that co-equal branch of government has come up the most and lawmakers then never got that chance no and and i i, I wrote about how 
uh, Republicans kind of sensed a opportunity in this session, but in many respects, uh, that opportunity kind of faded away. It faded away when you had uh, State Representative Darren Bailey uh, doing his self-promotion by not wearing a mask and getting kicked out, uh, only to uh, steal the thunder away from a, a Republican, likely Republican victory with the emergency rule that uh, Pritzker withdrew that would have charged business owners in violation of his rules with a class a misdemeanor you know that was a significant victory for republicans and and also it was a telling one because it, it was a sign too that there was there were democrats that were disgruntled about that but i want to ask you more about kind of that that kind of dynamic of republican democrat in when we come back but we're going to take a quick break I'm speaking with Mike Militich. He is State House correspondent for the Quincy Media Stations in Quincy, Peoria, Rockford, and Harrisburg. I'm Rick Pearson. This is your Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. And joining me on the phone from Springfield is Mike Militich. He is Statehouse correspondent for the Quincy Media TV stations. Uh, they cover Quincy, Peoria, Rockford, and Harrisburg. We're talking about the adjournment, uh, which seems like only a few minutes ago, of the Illinois General <laughs> Assembly, which was about 2 a.m. this morning, uh, of their special spring pandemic uh, session. And before we went to break, we're uh, talking kind of about the uh, – Obviously, the the partisanship that existed uh, and always exists, uh, but I also got the sense too that you know there there are an element of Democrats that, uh, given either the, the region that they represent because it's it's more downstate, uh, but also rural areas uh, closer to the city, that Democrats too there is some unease about. Uh, the governor's uh, reopen phase reopening, obviously the the issues linked to you know why are certain ex-urban counties linked to northeastern Illinois, for example, kind of what we've seen down in Madison County in the Metro East area with Democrats there, kind of bucking the governor's reopening, and I think it it and I can't remember who the speaker was on in the House. Uh, who who basically was saying about how there is no input uh, the Republicans complained there is no input on this and said and I can tell from the heads nodding on the other side of the aisle uh, that many of them dis- many of them agree with that uh, you were you're you were in the chambers uh, I mean did you get that sense absolutely I, I feel this is always mentioned that there's that that sense of partisanship, uh, but there there was a certain level of uh, toxic energy as well because lawmakers came in feeling that they had no power for such a long period of time. Uh, many people that spoke during debate, and not necessarily uh, in regards to the budget, but when they were talking about uh, the plan that would basically create this task force, this review. Uh, team that would look at Governor Pritzker's stay-at-home order the rest of the time that we're here through Restore Illinois, uh, they, they were concerned that it would only be 13 members. Now, you know that both 
chambers have a lot of members. You have 118 that are over in the House alone. And people were very upset to hear there would be that small amount of a group. And they're only going to have to submit a report in July. We're basically going to be done with Three Street Illinois by that point if things go as planned. So many lawmakers, as you mentioned, on both sides of the aisle were speaking their opinions about that. Yeah, and and plus the question, too, of is it just another task force? I mean, you know, right. if, if you want to, <laughs> right. and again, it's, it's like, uh, as we have seen many times, is one of the great ways to dispose of an issue is create a task force. And uh, that report goes in the file circular file drawer when it's issued. Of course, the opposite of, of the complaints about the, that small size of this task force on the reopening plan is the converse of that is you if you remember the property tax task force where i think everybody whose zip code that started with six was entitled to be a member of that and what did that mm-hmm. what did that property tax task force end up doing absolutely nothing um but I mean, obviously, the task force on the reopening, weaker than what Republicans want, but I, I also think weaker than, than frankly, some, some Democrats wanted, because it really wasn't any kind of an oversight committee. It was merely a advisory recommendation-type body. Right, right. I, I definitely got that feeling as well. And these, uh, specifically, with some of the Republicans that were speaking about this, leading up to this special session, they just wanted to have that input. Input was the biggest word, like you mentioned. And Governor Pritzker touched upon this during his press conference today uh, when he was asked about the uh, toxic energy during debates. He said that many of these members on both sides of the aisle have good conversations about him, that they want to be involved. And he had an interesting uh, quote during that press conference saying that lawmakers didn't want to be involved in the early phase of the stay-at-home order, yeah. but I, uh, that, that doesn't sound like that is true at all. Well, and, and I thought, I, I, when I heard that, and I, it kind of struck me as um, very interesting to, you know, here again, co-equal branch of government and the fact that, well, they didn't really want to be involved and let me drive the train. And, uh, you know, that I thought that was an interesting takeaway that he made there. And now, and certainly there's some aspects with this budget with the uh, unprecedented, well, I won't say unprecedented because that's not true, but certainly with the expansive powers that they gave him about, you know, moving money around and those kinds of things. Um, yeah, the legislators did kind of uh, afford him uh, more leeway, but it's not like it has been done in the past with governors in Springfield where the legislature just kind of says, uh, all right, here's the money, you make the cuts. Here's a lump sum budget, have at it. They didn't do that. Correct. Uh, And some during debate last night were bringing up that they feel we've already been under months of emergency power. This is only going to extend it. And Democrats argue that that's that's not the case, where we're going to allocate the funds and make sure Governor Pritzker can split them up in between any of the departments or any of the spaces that need the money the most with input from lawmakers. But 
many did not uh, see or hear it in that manner. And they, they were afraid that they're not going to be involved in the discussion here. They, they kept saying that the residents want to have their voice heard. And several Republican members said, we are here in Springfield for a reason. And many felt that even though we went into four days, uh, they didn't get those voices expressed. Yeah, and, and 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 the governor too tried to make it uh, a point that yeah he talks to not only the Republican leaders but talks to rank and file Republicans and that uh, basically what the partisan displays on the floor are, are basically you know just playing to the crowd at home and that's not really the case but I mean certainly the issue of input has been one that has been raised on both sides of, of the aisle. I want to ask you about uh, and thank you for asking my question as as pool reporter today down at the governor's office uh, about that yeah. issue of of local funding and uh, I truly was kind of struck by I thought there might be more of an effort to try to help local governments and i I think it was uh, Representative Ryan Spain from Peoria, who mentioned that, uh, you know, looking at this budget, he sees three firehouses closing in Peoria. I mean, that's not good. No, the three fire stations in Peoria and also 28 police officers, uh, all being cut from the city budget that they're discussing. And that that is a, a big cut right there. Uh, see, Seeing that I worked in Peoria most recently, uh, I obviously saw how that, that city was trying to uh, grow and make sure every area was covered. Now I'm seeing that that's a you know large metro area. Right. Just think about some of these smaller communities that may not have a metro center. Uh, m- many lawmakers are concerned about that. And I even saw today when this was mentioned, Brad Cole from the Illinois Municipal League was there to speak today and he mentioned during his speech that uh we're we're not done governor yeah i i I picked up on that too and and i thought it was very interesting and that the way he labeled basically he labeled mayors uh from throughout the state as being in a no-win position uh between uh the demands of their residents and the orders that he's supposed to follow that, that could definitely be seen, and especially for any that could be first-term mayors. What a tough position they're in right now. Uh, or, or specifically, anybody that is trying to make sure they could revive their economy if they had something, a big business leave before this all happened. Uh, it, it's impacting, as you uh, mentioned in the question today, you know, uh, municipalities are... A, a creature of state government, and that that is a huge part. A lot of people don't know that the state government means much more to you at your local level than the national government would. Right, and and that's that's why I, I threw that on there. Is the the, the, the cities are, are come from come from the state, and therefore there's there are some uh, greater state responsibility to ensure that they can function properly uh, when the state, you know, has has more resources than what's available for local governments. I will say one of the key things also from a Peoria lawmaker that I caught uh, shortly after Representative Spain spoke 
uh, was kind of a, a positive uh, portion of the budget. Uh, Representative John Gorham Booth had mentioned how important it is to have violence prevention being a, a part of this budget for investment. Uh, obviously, we're in Memorial Day weekend, and she lost her son, DJ, to gun violence six years ago. And she, she was a lawmaker and had to go home after they passed the budget to find out that happened. Right. And she she had a very impassionate speech on the floor last night talking about that, that she wanted to share the story because it's important to know the work that they do can impact the communities that they serve. And those lines in the budget, those numbers that you and I look at all the time, uh, literally are life and death. That that was really something and truly a moment for the whole entire chamber. Republicans and Democrats stood up to listen to her story, and they had a moment of silence as well. Yeah, I think uh, that took a lot of people's breaths away who weren't familiar with that with the story of, of that. And, and yeah, uh, sure, we're talking dollars and cents, but uh, that, that translates into people, too. And, you know, this when you're dealing with a 2,188-page budget document, um, you kind of forget sometimes about the people and the programs that are behind it. Um, but it's, uh, to me, this is basically a fluid document, uh, the budget and, and much as I see kind of the phase three, uh, quote, reopening of the state, I think is going to be very much a fluid affair, uh, as, as there's more negotiations about things happening, uh, to maybe kind of expand, uh, what the orders are, obviously, you know, following health guidelines. Uh, but uh, it's not going to be simple times ahead. No, the, the governor mentioned that, and he was also asked if he would be extending uh, the, the stay-at-home order at all, his emergency powers if needed, and that that's still up in the air. He's still discussing what could uh, happen or what needs to happen moving forward. That's Mike Miltich. He's Statehouse Correspondent for the Quincy Media Stations in Quincy, Peoria, Rockford, and Harrisburg. Mike, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. You have a great rest of your weekend, sir. You too. Enjoy your holiday. That's our show for this evening. It's been uh, it's been an interesting treat after uh, working off of just a few hours sleep. Thank you so much for listening. This is WGN.